Good morning and welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Jeffrey Epstein related court documents and evidence unsealed with Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton back in the headlines. More on the first unredacted release. With the first contest of the 2024 primary just weeks away, former President Trump asks the Supreme Court to step in regarding Colorado's ballot. A defendant attacks a Nevada judge in court during sentencing. We have the footage and the details of what happened. A Texas showdown over illegal immigration. Do states have the power to arrest and deport offenders? The Biden administration says no. And Speaker Mike Johnson has strong words at the southern border. Explosions in Iran, dozens dead, hundreds wounded near General's grave. No one has claimed responsibility. Will this complicated tension in the complicate tensions in the region? A former intel agent reacts. Tears of joy as captured Russian and Ukrainian troops return home. What we know about the latest exchange of prisoners of war. And we take a look back in time to the 2014 Consumer Electronics Show to see what gadgets and tech accessories were all the latest craze. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and good morning. Today is Thursday, January 4th. Yes, and our hearts go out to the victims of the twin blasts in Iran. Yes, absolutely. It was the deadliest blast since the Iranian Revolution, and that was in 1979. Yeah. And we're going to get more insight into the, all this in just a moment. We're going to bring you our lead story right now, which is the latest development in the Epstein saga. That's right. Accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein is back in the news as hundreds of pages of unsealed documents from a lawsuit go public. This is the first set of documents to be unsealed under a December 18th court order with more expected in the coming weeks. And just to be clear, being on the list does not indicate wrongdoing or lawbreaking. The list also includes alleged victims. And today's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and previously unknown individuals are named in the records released Wednesday in a case involving Jelaine Maxwell, a close friend of late financer and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Prosecutors in New York indicted Maxwell on sex trafficking charges involving multiple victims. She was convicted in 2021. The list stems from a 2015 defamation lawsuit filed against Maxwell by Virginia Gouffre, who accused Maxwell of abuse. The first batch includes around 40 unsealed court filings, featuring sealed depositions, emails and other evidence. Appearing in these court documents doesn't necessarily imply wrongdoing, as Epstein circulated within some high-powered circles. But Gouffre alleged in her deposition that Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, tech guru Marvin Minsky, French modeling scout Jean-Luc Brunel, and American investor Glenn Dubin. Prince Andrew was identified in the unsealed deposition of Johanna Schoberg, an already known alleged victim. Ms. Schoberg claimed during a deposition that Prince Andrew touched her breast while she was sitting in his lap for a photo. A court document filed by Goofrey's attorneys Tuesday says Andrew and Goofrey previously reached an out-of-court settlement in her sexual abuse lawsuit against him. Andrew has denied the allegations. The name of former President Bill Clinton, who is already known to be linked to Epstein, was featured in an email from Epstein to Maxwell in 2015. According to the unsealed filing, Epstein sent an email about Goofrey's lawsuit, suggesting offering a reward to Goofrey's friends and family that were willing to, quote, help prove her allegations are false. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein. 
According to an unsealed filing, Goofrey tried to have Clinton deposed, but was denied by a federal judge. Goofrey made no accusations against Clinton, but her counsel considered him a key person who could disprove Maxwell's claims, because of his close relationship with Maxwell and Epstein. Wednesday's court order states that more records will be disclosed on a rolling basis until completed. Court filings say 157 previously redacted names of those who knew and spent time with Epstein are expected to be disclosed. That includes alleged victims, prominent figures in the business and political worlds, employees, former associates, and journalists who investigated. The judge said a handful of names should remain redacted because they would identify people who were sexually abused. Goofrey's lawyer, Sigurd McCauley, reacted to the release, calling it a step further in the important goal of shutting down sex trafficking rings and holding more to account. But McCauley says there's still questions left unanswered about who enabled Epstein. She stated the public deserves to know how Epstein operated his vast, global sex trafficking enterprise and got away with it for decades. Maxwell is currently serving a 20-year prison sentence for helping Epstein sexually abuse minor girls for at least a decade. She is appealing her conviction. More documents are expected in the next few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In politics, former President Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado ruling, disqualifying him from the state's 2024 primary ballot. Trump's attorneys argue that eligibility should be determined by Congress and not the states. Trump's lawyers also wrote that the Colorado State Supreme Court made an error when it ruled that an insurrection took place at the U.S. Capitol or that Trump engaged in it. Colorado's high court ruled Trump ineligible last month. That was due to an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The state's Republican Party has also filed its own appeal. The Colorado ruling is on hold while appeals play out. The state's primary is set for Super Tuesday on March 5th. If justices do take up the case and conclude Trump is ineligible for public office, then any votes cast for him wouldn't count. And now for some analysis on efforts to remove Trump from the ballot in Virginia, and if time permits, other states. We're joined by Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Good morning to you, Paul. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so activists had their time in Virginia there, and they were trying to remove Trump from the ballot, and then it was thrown out by a district judge, and now they've appealed to the Richmond Circuit Court. How are they going to be able to show that they were personally harmed if Trump were to be on the ballot? Yeah, uh, there's about 20 or 30 of these cases uh, floating around the country, and as you noted, there there are two that are before the Supreme Court, or will soon be the one in Colorado, the one in Maine. Uh, this one was uh, rejected by the federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, the other day because the court ruled they lacked standing to bring the suit. So they uh, now filed in a local Richmond circuit court, a state court, uh, and they're basically uh, repeating the same allegations that Trump engaged in insurrection. Uh, I don't think that case is going anywhere. Uh, these are just a couple of activists. Uh, they're really not lawyers. They kind of screwed up their papers the first time in the federal court. So uh, I, I think this case will also be rejected by the Richmond Circuit Court as well. Right. It, one would wonder if there's any reason why Judge Brinkema's ruling would be any different from what the Richmond Superior Court or the Richmond Circuit Court would actually do here anyway. Yeah, that's true. The, uh, there may be some difference in, in the federal court. There may be a high, higher standard of showing injury plus procedurally these cases generally go through state court like it did in colorado and maine and other uh, courts because that's the state courts uh basically have jurisdiction over the election procedures so 
uh, they may have a little better chance in the Richmond uh, Circuit Court, but uh, I think this is going to be rejected as well. Right, and it's interesting, and if there is any progress there, wouldn't you say that the Supreme Court is ultimately going to have to step in and make a ruling for all of these cases? Well, absolutely, and, and as you said, the case is now uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, both the Republican Party from Colorado and Trump himself uh, yesterday filed a petition for writ of certiorari asking the Supreme Court to review the Colorado case and the court, Supreme Court, will decide soon whether they're going to take it. I think we'll get a, a ruling on that in the next uh, week or two. And then they will uh, have briefing and oral argument, uh, I would say, uh, in another four or five weeks. And their ruling will basically set the standard uh, for all these cases rather than keep a patchwork quilt of different courts ruling on different ways on this important issue. Right, and Paul, I have the filing that Trump's team sent to the Supreme Court right here, and it just shows that yep. the <clears throat> people of the United States are, should be the ones who elect their representative to serve them, and that is probably going to be some pretty firm legal grounds for them to bring forth this case, in addition to their argument that Trump did not engage in an insurrection, would you say? Uh, well, yeah, and, and the other legal issues are whether or not the, the 14th Amendment even applies to Trump uh, and, and uh, the president. They're arguing that nowhere in that provision of the Constitution is the president mentioned. They mentioned members of Congress. They mentioned president electors and vice president electors and other military and civil officers, but they didn't mention the president. And, and uh, so that's a good argument that they have. Uh, also, another strong argument is that this provision is not self-executing, meaning you can't just have various courts decide on their own whether or not Trump engaged in insurrection, that you need Congress to basically enact a law that explains what constitutes insurrection and rebellion. And that's a stronger argument, and I think that's probably one that the uh, court will rule on. I don't right. think the court will want to get into whether or not he engaged in insurrection. That's too factually uh, involved, and, and the court, Supreme Court will rather rule on questions of law. Right, and Paul, yeah, they're basically saying that the states are taking away power from Congress when it's their authority to enforce Correct. this. So, Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s bid for the White House got a boost yesterday. The independent candidate will be on Utah's presidential ballot in the 2024 campaign. Kennedy is trying to get his name on ballots nationwide, and Utah is the first state to take that step. He says he's optimistic about his White House bid, citing last month's Kinnipiac University poll. It showed Kennedy getting 22% support in a hypothetical race between him, President Biden, and former President Trump. Kennedy also criticized Colorado and Maine's decisions to take Trump off their respective ballots. A major speech coming up as President Biden's seeking to draw a contrast with former President Trump. That's as polls show Biden trailing Trump in key battleground states. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao reports. 
are expecting to see a major split screen moment this Saturday on the third anniversary of January 6th between former President Trump and President Biden. And President Biden is giving a speech on democracy at Valley Forge, a historic revolutionary war site near Philadelphia. And the goal here is to try to convince voters that former President Trump poses a historic threat to democracy, one that Biden's campaign says has only grown more dire in the years after 2020. Meanwhile, the White House today is saying this about January 6th. Watch. Uh, what happened on Jan January 6th was unprecedented, uh, an attack on our core principles, an attack on our democracy. What we saw uh, was an attack on our rule of law. And the White House tells us that President Biden also had lunch with a group of historians and scholars about, quote, the ongoing threats to democracy and democratic institutions here in America and around the world. So we are really seeing President Biden's campaign here trying to jumpstart this year's campaign events with a theme about a fight for democracy and Biden versus Trump as we're getting closer and closer to a potential rematch between the two. President Trump is holding two campaign events in Iowa this Saturday of course, as the Iowa caucus is just about a week away. And let's not forget that Trump just weeks ago has also called President Biden a threat to democracy, accusing him of launching politically motivated persecution against Trump himself. So it does remain to be seen how the two leading candidates in the 2024 race will target and potentially respond to each other in their addresses this Saturday. Back to you. Next, a bomb threat empties Capitol buildings in multiple states. Hear how the offender was able to target so many states at the same time. A video shows the moment a Nevada judge was attacked in court by a defendant during sentencing. We have the details. Federal power versus state power, a constitutional showdown in Texas over an illegal immigration law. Find out why the Department of Justice wants to stop Texas after the break. Thanks for staying with us. Capitol buildings in multiple states were temporarily shut down and evacuated yesterday. Officials say a mass email bomb threat was sent to several state offices across the country. The sender claimed to have placed explosives inside, quote, your state capital. Although no specific state was mentioned in the email, it's not clear if other email threats were sent. The threat affected capital proceedings in Kentucky, Mississippi, Georgia, Connecticut, Michigan, and Minnesota. No states have reported finding any threatening items in those buildings. The FBI issued a statement saying they were aware of the incidents, adding that it takes hoax threats very seriously because it puts innocent people at risk. The government agency said they have no information to indicate a specific and credible threat. An attack on a Nevada judge caught on camera. It happened yesterday morning in a Las Vegas co courtroom. We want to warn you the following video contains scenes that may disturb some viewers. I just can't with that history. In accordance with the laws of state of Nevada, this court. The defendant was being sentenced for aggravated battery with substantial bodily harm. He entered a guilty plea during the hearing after Judge Mary Kay Holthus denied bail due to his criminal history. The man leaped over the judge's bench. 
The judge sustained some injuries and her condition is being monitored. A marshal involved in the incident was hospitalized after the attack. The defendant will be back in court today to face three new felony charges stemming from the incident. Dozens of House Republicans at the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Their trip comes as Customs and Border Patrol saw a record high number of illegal crossings in December, around 300,000. That is roughly the size of the city of Orlando, Florida, crossing into the United States illegally in a single month. Entity's congressional correspondent Melina Weiskup reports for us. House Republicans have made several trips to the southern border, but this is the first time that Mike Johnson is leading a delegation as the speaker, and it comes at a time when pressure is high, as right now the Senate is working on a deal with the White House. They're trying to find common ground solutions over immigration and border policy, how to change those policies to fix the immigration issue. But House Republicans, they have their own list of demands, much of which includes returning to Trump-era border policies, such as the Remain in Mexico policy. This delegation was made up of around 64 Republican lawmakers from 26 states, the Republican speaker says, and they met with Border Patrol agents, they met with local residents, they viewed processing centers, all to get a grip of the current situation at the border. Here's what those Republicans had to say about the urgency of the issue, arguing why their demands deserve to be met. When, when President Trump entered the Oval Office, he he put in the Remain in Mexico policy. He ended the catch and release policy. He did the fundamental common sense things that stem the flow. It was down to a tiny fraction of what it is right now in December alone. It's the highest number in history. And, and it's going to continue because they're showing no, uh, no, no inclination at all to change it. The greatest domestic threat to the national security and the safety of the American people is Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And that last person you just heard from was Congressman Mark Green. He's the chairman on the Homeland Security Committee here. He says that next week his committee will officially begin those impeachment proceedings against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, arguing that he has failed to uphold his duty to secure the border. But the DHS Secretary has pushed back, saying he simply doesn't have the money or the resources to 100% carry out his job effectively, saying that the ball is now in Congress's court. Take a look at what he had to say. We need additional personnel uh, to advance our security at the border. We need technology to advance our fight uh, against fentanyl. We need additional asylum officers to really accelerate the asylum adjudication process. But Republicans argue that if Congress does give the DHS more money, that money will only be used to process more illegal immigrants and release them into the country rather than use the money to try to stem the flow of illegal immigration to begin with. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Texas and the federal government locking horns over illegal immigration. The Justice Department on Wednesday filed a lawsuit against the Lone Star State over a law it enacted last month. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on that and other updates from the southern border. The Texas immigration law known as Senate Bill 4 makes it a state crime to illegally enter or re-enter Texas from a foreign country. It gives state officials broad powers to arrest, prosecute, and deport those who do so. The Texas legislature passed the measure in November. Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law in December. The Texas governor reacted to the lawsuit on X, saying, Biden sued me today because I signed a law making it illegal for an illegal immigrant to enter or attempt to enter Texas directly from a foreign nation. I like my chances. 
Abbott also discussed the court case on Fox News. Texas is the only government in the United States of America that's stepping up trying to stop illegal immigration by building our own border wall. The Justice Department says the law is unconstitutional, calling it a violation of the Supremacy Clause, which says that federal laws usually supersede state laws. The strong waves of illegal immigration led to the closure of several border crossings last month. The government will now reopen four U.S.-Mexico border crossings on Thursday. Border authorities say that surge has receded somewhat and freed up personnel. But some caution that migrant crossings have historically dropped between Christmas and New Year's Day. The U.S. will resume operations at an international bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas, two crossings in Arizona, and another near San Diego, California. The House passed a sweeping immigration and border security bill last year known as H.R. 2 that was opposed by Democrats. But several senators say the bill won't pass the Senate. Republican Senator James Lankford on the bill. It's got a lot of great ideas and a lot of good pieces in it. I can't get a Democratic Senate to be able to agree with that at all. My understanding is that H.R. 2 doesn't have Democratic votes in the House or in the Senate. But independent Senator Kirsten Sinema is more optimistic about passing a bipartisan border security bill. Sinema said on Wednesday that Senate negotiators were closing in on a deal which could couple southern border security with new emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, explosions in Iran, dozens dead, hundreds wounded near a general's grave, no one claiming responsibility. Who's to blame? Will this complicate tensions in the region? A former intel agent reacts. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading to the Middle East. Find out where he's stopping and what objectives he has for his visit. Good to have you back. Iran says at least 84 people were killed yesterday in two explosions southeast of Tehran. That was at a ceremony for slain terrorist Qasem Soleimani. Iranian officials say the explosions hit just minutes apart in the city of Kerman. No one immediately claimed responsibility for the attack. Iran's leaders say over 280 people were injured and vowed to punish those responsible for the blast. An earlier death toll of around 100 was revised twice after officials realized some names had been repeated. The U.S. killed Soleimani in 2020 in Baghdad, Iraq. That was in a precision drone strike ordered by former President Trump. Trump said Soleimani was responsible for plotting attacks on American diplomats and military personnel. The White House has weighed in on the two deadly explosions in Iran yesterday. We have no indication at this time at all that Israel was involved in any way whatsoever. But we don't have any... Um, we don't have any more detail in terms of how it happened or who would, might be responsible for it. And for analysis on the possible culprit and motivation behind the deadly blasts in Iran, we hear from Avi Malamed, a former Israeli intelligence official and founder of InsideTheMiddleEast.com. Avi, thank you for your time today. How likely is it that the blast was committed by some other group outside of ISIS, say Kurds or something other than that? Thank you for having me. It's very likely. We have to remember there are lots of groups in Iran that are very hostile to the regime and they have good reasons to be, just to name a few. You got the Kurdish underground, you got 
the rebels of the uh, Ahwaz, the Khazastan, you got the Baluchi minority in Iran. All of them are brutally oppressed by the Iranian regime. We got ISIS um, also present in, in Iran. So there are different factors that could be definitely candidates for something like that. Right. And we know that ISIS was the perpetrator of a blast that occurred back in October 2022, in which 15 people were killed, 40 injured. So we know that there is a tendency for this type of occurrence to happen. And that was over sort of a religious reason, calling what they say, you know, Sunnis that they did not like. So is there any possibility that this is a repeat here? It's possible, but there is something interesting about the relationship between the regime and, uh, and ISIS. ISIS is a Sunni militant Islam. The regime in Iran is Shiite. There is uh, traditionally a deep animosity between Sunnis and Shiites, particularly between these two factors. That being said, there is also some interesting information indicating that at the same time there has been some sort of like dialogue or connections going on between that regime and ISIS, as, as made it surprise to, to the audience. I just want to remind one interesting fact. Al-Qaeda leaders, Al-Qaeda is the mother movement of ISIS. Al-Qaeda leaders find refuge in Iran. So we shouldn't be that surprised to know about that potential relationship. Right, and we just heard the White House say that they have no indication that Israel is involved. So do you expect Israel involvement here? And if not, why not? No, I do not uh, think Israel has anything to do uh, for different reasons. First, uh, when you look at the nature of what happened yesterday, obviously I saw lots of reports coming in. Many um, civilians uh, were killed, uh, injured during that attack. This is definitely not something that Israel would do. Um, the other thing is that I don't see any reason why Israel should do that, particularly right now when everything is so tense. I definitely don't think Israel is involved in that. And I think that Israel will also find ways to convey a very clear message that it has no uh, connection to that attack. That being said, it should also be mentioned that the Iranian regime, at least sources in the Iranian regime, may point the finger at Israel, which for itself is a very interesting um, um, fact. Right. And there are so many movement moving parts here to the war in Gaza. We have action in the Red Sea. Lebanon is obviously, you know, there's so many things unfolding there. Do you think that this particular incident in Iran is going to cause tensions in the region to accelerate? Well, look, uh, we are already in the midst of uh, evolving and escalating uh, tension across the region. Uh, The common denominator, by the way, for all those things that you mentioned, the Red Sea, the Houthis, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza Strip, the common denominator is that they are all, of course, part of this Iranian-backed network of armies of terror across the Middle East. So right now we are in the midst of this escalating um, um, friction, sort of speaking, uh, between... Israel and Hezbollah in the northern border. Today we just had um, a U.S. attack on Iraqi Shiite militias backed by the Iranians. Yesterday we saw a very clear warning from the U.S.-led coalition against the Houthis, warning them for the last time to stop the attacks on the Red Sea. So you got enough of factors that each one of them could easily fuel an escalation. In that regard, you could look at what happened in Iran yesterday as something that adds to the picture But that's not the real thing that is going in the end of the day to ignite, if there is going to be such a scenario, to ignite a massive collision around the region. Well, that's some reassuring words there. Avi Malamed, former Israeli intelligence official and founder of InsideTheMiddleEast.com. Thank you for weighing in on this. Sure.
Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to visit the Middle East today. It will include a stop in Israel amid diplomatic efforts by the U.S. on the Israel-Gaza conflict. That's according to a senior U.S. official who briefed reporters on con condition of anonymity. The official further stated U.S. diplomatic envoy Amos Hochstein will also travel to Israel to work to soothe tensions between Israel and Hezbollah. No further details were provided. Meanwhile, President Biden spoke by phone to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in recent days. The administration wants to improve access to Gaza for humanitarian aid and secure the release of hostages held by the Hamas terrorist group. Members of the UN Security Council want Yemen's Houthi militants to halt their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Speaking at this year's first formal council meeting, members yesterday said the illegal attacks threaten regional stability, freedom of navigation and global food supplies. In addition, members also demanded the Iran-backed Houthis release a Japanese-operated cargo ship and its crew. The vessel is linked to an Israeli company and was seized by the Houthis in November. Some members urged the council to take action to halt the Houthi missile and drone attacks, but no formal steps were taken in the open session. The Houthis have launched drones and missiles at more than 20 ships since late November. Yeah, it's definitely so important to secure that shipping route because costs are on the line, Israel's supplies there, and just there's obviously a need to protect the people who are actually involved in this shipping. Absolutely, that and of course then the economical effects there. Yes. And stay with us. We have some updates following Tuesday's plane crash at a Tokyo airport. New information out about a possible cause. Find out the latest. Tears of joy as captured Russian and Ukrainian troops return home. What we know about the latest exchange of prisoners of war. And we take a look back in time to the 2014 Consumer Electronics Show to see what gadgets and tech accessories were all the latest craze. So stay around. Welcome back. The deadly crash in Japan between a passenger jet and a Coast Guard turboprop likely came down to human error. That's according to a former Japan Airlines pilot and aviation expert. Japanese authorities said yesterday the passenger jet was given permission to land, but the smaller plane had not been cleared for takeoff. Investigations into the incident are in their early stages. There remains uncertainty over events surrounding the crash, including how the two aircraft ended up on the same runway. According to experts, airplane accidents usually come down to failure of multiple safety guardrails. Authorities have since released transcripts of traffic control instructions. These appear to show the Japan Airlines jet had been given permission to land while the Coast Guard aircraft was told to taxi to a holding point near the runway. Aviation officials say there was no indication the Coast Guard aircraft was granted permission to take off. Over to the war between Russia and Ukraine, tears of joy as the two countries exchange hundreds of prisoners of war. Ukraine said 230 prisoners of war, including six civilians, returned home yesterday. 
Russia said nearly 250 of its troops were freed. This was the biggest single release of captives since the war began almost two years ago. The United Arab Emirates helped mediate the deal. Russia and Ukraine had multiple prisoner swaps in 2022, but they slowed down in 2023. The last prisoner swap was in August of 2023. Among the Ukrainian troops released today were some of those who fought in milestone battles for Snake Island and the city of Mariupol in 2022. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shared photos of the freed troops saying, we remember each and every one of our people. Russia offered no other details of the exchange. And now let's head into the world of technology. The Consumer Electronics Show, one of the world's largest tech events, is set to get underway next week in Las Vegas. Top trends at this year's exhibition will be artificial intelligence, alternative foods, and health technology. With the start of the new year, we take a look at what has changed over the last decade. NTD's Cost Temenas looks at the tech introduced back in 2014. Ten years ago, wearable technology was all the rage at CES. Attendees also got a very early glimpse of an autonomous vehicle. Whether it's 3D printing, Ultra HD, the safe way of driving a car with all these different ways of doing it, heading towards a driverless car, as well as all these sort of little components that are making up the products of the future. Dozens of different smartwatches were being showcased, some to make phone calls, others to monitor your health. As well as many fashionable accessories, like this handbag that doubled as a portable speaker. The event also featured all kinds of virtual and augmented reality goggles and glasses, including this combination headphone visor prototype. And of course, we saw the rise of curved televisions many of which featuring the then-new 4K technology, with four times the number of pixels. New car concepts, such as next-level navigation systems and vehicle diagnostics, were also introduced, with nearly every major auto manufacturer present at the exhibition. There were also awkward moments such as Transformers director Michael Bay abruptly walking off stage during the Samsung press conference. Californian company Fashion Tech first introduced a new line of smart rings, bracelets and necklaces. And last but not least, 3D printing technology made a huge leap forward when 3D Systems unveiled its first food-safe printers, each allowing users to create their own sweet concoctions. CES 2014 also featured many other gadgets, from state-of-the-art baby monitors to a karaoke machine that improves your singing. Much has changed in a decade, and visitors can look forward to more exciting upcoming accessories and gadgets. This year's exhibition opens on January 9th, following two days of media previews. Cost MNS, NTD News. A couple of things that we recognize, but just for a moment here, karaoke machines that improve your singing. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> well, it can come in handy if you need it. Yeah, and a lot can change in 10 years. I mean, those car models they showed are really cool. Now they got prototypes for flying cars and things like that. Yeah, oh yeah, we're gonna have something coming up for, uh, on that end later on. But we're now moving to some uh, scandals. 2024 will commemorate some of the world's most important events. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on what major anniversaries this year has in store.
The new year has arrived, and that means a slew of upcoming anniversaries. 90 years ago on January 1, 1934, Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay became a federal prison. Al Capone was among its most infamous inmates. 110 years ago on June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. The killing set off a chain of events that spiraled into World War I. But the Great War wouldn't be the last worldwide conflict. On June 6, 80 years ago, 156,000 Allied troops landed in Normandy. The largest amphibious invasion in history was ultimately able to breach Hitler's Atlantic Wall on France's north coast. By the end of the day, some 10,000 men had been killed, injured, or were missing. February 2024 marks a decade since Russia annexed Crimea and Ukraine. Less than 10 years later, Russia launched a full-scale invasion in February 2022. In sports, Muhammad Ali, known then as Cassius Clay, won the world heavyweight title 60 years ago in 1964, defeating the heavily favored Sonny Liston. Paris will host the Olympics this summer, 100 years after it last hosted the Games. The 1924 Games were the first to house athletes in an Olympic village. Johnny Weissmuller won three swimming gold medals. The future star of the Tarzan films also earned a bronze medal in water polo. Sixty years ago, Donald Campbell set the world water speed record on December 31, 1964. The daredevil reached an average speed of 276 miles per hour in his speedboat Bluebird in Western Australia. Campbell was the first person to break the world land and water speed records in the same year. He died trying to break his own record a few years later in England. Thirty years ago, Nelson Mandela became the first president of post-apartheid South Africa. After 27 years in prison, he became one of the world's most beloved statesmen in 1994. He died in December 2013. On August 9, 1974, U.S. President Richard Nixon resigned over Watergate. The scandal involved breaking into and bugging the Democratic National Committee headquarters. 110 years ago, the Panama Canal opened. The waterway revolutionized global sea traffic by replacing long voyages around South America's Cape Horn. An estimated 20,000 workers died during French control of the project, many due to tropical diseases such as malaria. 5,600 more perished during U.S. construction. In September 2014, protesters in Hong Kong demonstrated for 79 days, but failed to win any concessions. The movement inspired a new generation of political activists. But China has cracked down on free speech and political opposition in the former British colony. Twenty years ago, some 230,000 people in southern Asia were killed by a tsunami on December 26, 2004. The world's most powerful earthquake in 40 years beneath the Indian Ocean triggered the catastrophe. Apple launched its first Apple Macintosh computer 40 years ago on January 24, 1984. The Mac had a graphical user interface and was also cheaper and faster. It also marked the beginning of the company's large advertising campaigns. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Wow, lots of mo notable mom uh, moments there all across the board. Yeah, it's like opening up a time capsule seeing that old Mac. 
I know. I actually had one of those, you like did? a similar one. Yeah, when the first Macs came out. Oh, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> yeah, they had some pretty cool games on there. But on a more serious note, my grandfather actually was involved in D-Day invasion, not on the beaches, wow. but paradropping behind enemy lines, softening really? up German defenses. Yeah, wow. he was shot three times on the way down, and then he ended up getting a Purple Heart for that, for continuing to fight thereafter. And rightfully so. So uh, great uh, sacrifice he did there. And of course, D-Day being so significant, putting the Allies on a way to their uh, to their to their victory. Yes. Well, coming up, tired of being stuck in standstill traffic during rush hour? Well, there might be a solution. We take a look at a prototype of a flying car. Welcome back. We have a segment about technology coming up for you. Being stuck in standstill traffic could be a thing of the past. That's right. I spoke to the founder of a company that's developing a flying car. Take a look. Joining me now to tell us more is Doron Merdinger. He is the founder and CEO of Doroni Aerospace. Good morning, Doron. It's really good to see you. It's such an interesting topic to talk about. So because you're the CEO of let's say one of the startups that are looking to roll out flying cars. First, when do you think we will actually see the first ones out on the streets and in the air, of course? So our target is basically 2025. Um, it's, it's important to note that there are two main categories of, of flying cars as well. It's called eVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. Most of them are catered to the air taxi, which is a, a ride sharing. Um, it's a big aircraft, uh, it's a service like uh, Uber or an air taxi. We are not that, uh, we're different in a way that we're doing for personal use. So essentially you will be able to fly yourself from your own home, from your essentially two car garage here in, in Florida and commute uh, at an altitude of about a higher, a little bit higher of a drone. So that means when you say 2025, it means that the public, like I could also just buy um, one of your flying car or vehicles? And, and then what, what else do I need to do to basically um, be allowed or what kind of licenses do I need? Yeah, so until now we have close to 400 uh, pre-order requests. People deposited $10,000. So essentially we sold the first year of production, uh, 2025. Um, the, the license at this point, it will be uh, an LSA light sport aircraft um, a license because this is um, this will be categorized as a powerlifter under the LSA, which is a, a category that always in existence. Um, but you'll be able to upgrade your your pilot licenses if you want to fly distances or at night or with instruments. So it's something that you can move upwards. So do we need to think about inf you know like infrastructure yet or how traffic is going to be? Like how is that going to look like? Well, so it's a good question. The, the NASA and the FAA have been working with that for years. Uh, Drone Aerospace has been engaged both with the NASA and the FAA through also in a, a team called ASTM group. So we're advising how this thing will, will work. This is, again, this is more down the road when, you know, there'll be more traffic in the sky. It will take many years to that, obviously. Uh, but there's already solutions in place. So they're thinking about, for example, until now, you would fly an aircraft with the VFR, which is the visual flying rules, or IFR, which is instrument flying rules. NASA have been working, and we're also working with them on DFR, digital flying rules. So essentially, every every vehicle will have like some sort of a, um, a homing device that will give the signals where it is in the three-dimensional world. 
and and also there's something called geofencing that's already been placed for for uh, drones today. Very easy to control. It's much easier to control a vehicle like that than other aircraft uh, because the way they fly and all the mechanics and the, the, the intricacies that the regular aircraft had. Really, what we're doing is. The, the the brain here it's so keep why it's called keys keep it smart simple the brain is in the design and development and understanding the parts to make it a more user friendly and that of safe machine uh, reduce the pilot's error basically will it be still a steering wheel or how what can people expect well it's it's easier it's easier than a steering wheel it's just a joystick a very simple mm -hmm. joystick very intuitive one joystick there's no pedals nothing moving forward backwards left right uh, PTO and roll all involved in one joystick, and if you don't know what to do, just drop your hands and it will maintain the location, much like a drone. So okay. you see those drones today, every kid can fly. This will be even easier to control. Fascinating. I can't wait to see those. Thank you so much, Daron Murdinger. I appreciate your time today and for introducing this, the flying cars. Thank you for the opportunity. Something for the next generation, possibly, that they'll grow up with these flying cars and they'll get really good at them. Right? Yeah, that's pro possibly, but you know, I, it look, judging from the pictures, it looks like it's going to take up quite a few lanes. Yeah, well, and I hope they're easier to fly than drones. Those things can be pretty tricky when you that's get your true. hands on the joystick like the that. practice. Yeah, well, and you know, there's uh, a lot in the works here. They have to have the air traffic control network set up before they can actually get people on those air routes. And then the noise is another issue too. Mm. So they have to work all that out. Yeah, but think about it, especially in New York City, I see that having such great potential, especially because I, when I walk down the street, I think I've mentioned this before, but you see all these emergency responders just being stuck in traffic for so long. And you have somebody in the back that is fighting for their lives. So that could potentially help save a couple of lives. That's a great application. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, we'll be back in just a minute to start the second part of our broadcast to stick with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning here. Today's top stories. Explosions in Iran killed dozens of people near a slain general's grave yesterday. Hear what the U.S. has to say. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be heading to the Middle East later today. He'll be stopping in Israel during his visit. Find out the objectives of his trip. Federal power versus state power, a constitutional battle in Texas over a new law to curb illegal immigration. Find out why the Biden administration wants to stop a Texas plan. Jeffrey Epstein related court documents and evidence unsealed with Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton back in the headlines. More on the first unredacted release. 
looking ahead at retirement, some new legal changes could make it easier for you to save up for your retirement. Stay tuned to find out more. They start out as cute puppies. We take a look at the school that trains them to become international drug-sniffing canine police officers. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Thursday, January 4th. In today's top news, Iran says at least 84 people were killed yesterday in two explosions southeast of Tehran. That was at a ceremony for slain terrorist Qasem Soleimani. Iranian officials say the explosions hit just minutes apart in the city of Kerman. No one immediately claimed responsibility for the attack. Iran's leaders say over 280 people were injured and vowed to punish those responsible for the blasts. An earlier death toll of around 100 was revised twice after officials realized some names had been repeated. The U.S. killed Soleimani in 2020 in Baghdad, Iraq. That was in a precision drone strike ordered by former President Trump. Trump said Soleimani was responsible for plotting attacks on American diplomats and military personnel. The White House has weighed in on the two deadly explosions in Iran yesterday. We have no indication at this time at all that Israel was involved in any way whatsoever. But we don't have any... Um, we don't have any more detail in terms of how it happened or who would, might be responsible for it. Also yesterday, we reported about the assassination of Hamas leader Saleh al-Aruri. Let's hear more about the possible aftermath from Brandon Weikert. He is a geopolitical analyst and author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Good morning. It's really good to see you. First, tell me more about the role of Saleh al-Aruri. How important was he actually for Hamas as an organization? Well, Aruri was very important, and good morning, by the way. Thank you for having me. But Aruri was uh, very good um, for uh, Hamas's command structure because he was the guy that created uh, the Al-Qassam Brigades. So this is a very important wing. Uh, it's the militant wing of, of Hamas. He was uh, in Israeli prison, I think, for about 15 years, and then he was released and ended up living, quote, in exile in Lebanon to the north of Israel. Uh, but as it has been proven, he was actually in charge of Hamas's political wing uh, and as into, until the day he died. Uh, so he's a very important loss for Hamas, not only in terms of sort of the symbol, but also because of the years of experience in uh, warfare that he had brought to the table for that organization. So his loss will be felt for many years to come. That's interesting that you say that. I've actually heard analysts said uh, that Hamas is known for replacing leadership like that and being able to absorb these kind of contingencies, which almost makes it sounds like it won't have that huge of an impact. So tell me more about how, where you think this fits into Israel's strategy. Well, they're going to be able to replace him. And the whole nature of Hamas and Hezbollah and these terrorist organizations is they're sort of like a hydra. They cut off one head, another one rises in its place. But you can't discount the importance of uh, Aurori's um, years of experience. And so they, they can replace him and they'll probably find somebody who can and they'll keep fighting. But there is going to be a serious deficit, I think. Uh, with just the years of experience and what he brought to the table in terms of his style of leadership. 
Understood. And now, of course, it was in the south of Lebanon. So what do you make of Hezbollah's warnings? Do you see this war widening because of this? Well, uh, Hezbollah, it, I've been warning that they have these precision guided missiles that are the real threat to Israel in the medium term uh, because Israel can hit Gaza. They can take out Hamas. But Hezbollah has the full backing, and it's basically an arm of the Iranian military. Um, and so I think that while Hezbollah doesn't want to necessarily fight right this minute, they are itching to basically have that northern front open up. So this very well could be the trigger. You're already seeing European countries and Canada recall their citizens, telling people to not stay in Lebanon if they're there. You saw the, the reports coming out is that Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, was whisked away from Beirut to Tehran, that's not yet mm. confirmed. Uh, but certainly, I think this is a sign uh, that, that Hezbollah might be readying now to open up that northern front that I've been warning about for the last few months. Wow, certainly something to keep an eye on because very serious. So do you think now with that, since Israel went to Lebanon, do you think, and they have been warning that they would go after Hamas wherever they are. So do you think they would target leaders in Turkey and Qatar as well? Absolutely. I think that they target the leadership of Hamas wherever they go. Um, and it's also a sign to countries like Turkey, which seem to be giving sympathy to Hamas and possibly Hezbollah, not to get too close to Hamas because Israel will do what it takes to defend itself. Furthermore, it's a message to Hezbollah. Do not think about starting a northern front because the Israelis are saying we will come after you, too. And if you want to risk that, then try it. But see what happens next. So I think this is all communication uh, through force, basically. So with such a clear message, why do you think Israel was not giving a clearer statement on this attack? They like to maintain uh, an uh, the the shroud of secrecy around their uh, around their operations. That helps not only with plausible deniability, but it also allows for them to protect sources and methods. And that uncertainty puts fear into their enemies, and that is a key component of Israel's strategy. They want to strike fear into the hearts of the terrorists, who often use fear as a weapon against Israel. Hmm. Thank you so much, Brandon Weikert. I really appreciate your insight, you as me. always. Thank you. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to visit the Middle East today. It will include a stop in Israel amid diplomatic efforts by the U.S. on the Israel-Gaza conflict. That's according to a senior U.S. official who briefed reporters on condition of anonymity. The official further stated U.S. diplomatic envoy Amos Hochstein will also travel to Israel to work to soothe tensions between Israel and Hezbollah. No further details were provided. Meanwhile, President Biden spoke by phone to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in recent days. The administration wants to improve access to Gaza for humanitarian aid and secure the release of hostages held by the Hamas terrorist group. Moving on, accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein is back in the news as hundreds of pages of unsealed documents from a lawsuit go public. This is the first set of documents to be unsealed under a December 18th court order with more expected in the coming weeks. And just to be clear, being on the list does not indicate wrongdoing or lawbreaking. The list also includes alleged victims. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg reports.
Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and previously unknown individuals are named in the records released Wednesday in a case involving Jelaine Maxwell, a close friend of late financer and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Prosecutors in New York indicted Maxwell on sex trafficking charges involving multiple victims. She was convicted in 2021. The list stems from a 2015 defamation lawsuit filed against Maxwell by Virginia Gouffray, who accused Maxwell of abuse. The first batch includes around 40 unsealed court filings, featuring sealed depositions, emails, and other evidence. Appearing in these court documents doesn't necessarily imply wrongdoing, as Epstein circulated within some high-powered circles. But Goofrey alleged in her deposition that Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, tech guru Marvin Minsky, French modeling scout Jean-Luc Brunel, and American investor Glenn Dubin. Prince Andrew was identified in the unsealed deposition of Johanna Schoberg, an already known alleged victim. The name of former President Bill Clinton, who is already known to be linked to Epstein, was featured in an email from Epstein to Maxwell in 2015. Goofrey made no accusations against Clinton, but her counsel considered him a key person who could disprove Maxwell's claims because of his close relationship with Maxwell and Epstein. Wednesday's court order states that more records will be disclosed on a rolling basis until completed. Court filings say 157 previously redacted names of those who knew and spent time with Epstein are expected to be disclosed. The judge said a handful of names should remain redacted because they would identify people who were sexually abused. Maxwell is currently serving a 20-year prison sentence for helping Epstein sexually abuse minor girls for at least a decade. She is appealing her conviction. More documents are expected in the next few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up with the first contests of the 2024 primary just weeks away, former President Trump asks the Supreme Court to step in regarding Colorado's ballot. Looking ahead at retirement, some new legal changes could make it easier for you to save your money. Stay tuned to find out more. From pups to international police officers, visit the school training dogs to become sniffers for drugs and explosives when we come back. Welcome back. Former President Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado ruling, disqualifying him from the state's 2024 primary ballot. Trump's attorneys argue that eligibility should be determined by Congress and not the states. Trump's lawyers also wrote that the Colorado State Supreme Court made an error when it ruled that an insurrection took place at the U.S. Capitol or that Trump engaged in it. Colorado's high court ruled Trump ineligible last month. That was due to an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The state's Republican Party has also filed its own appeal. The Colorado ruling is on hold while appeals play out. The state's primary is set for Super Tuesday on March 5th. If justices do take up the case and conclude Trump is ineligible for public office, then any votes cast for him wouldn't count. Texas and the federal government locking horns over illegal immigration. The Justice Department on Wednesday filed a lawsuit against the Lone Star State over a law it enacted last month. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on that and other updates from the southern border. The Texas immigration law known as Senate Bill 4 makes it a state crime to illegally enter or re-enter Texas from a foreign country. It gives state officials broad powers to arrest, prosecute, and deport those who do so. The Texas legislature passed the measure in November. Governor Greg Abbott signed it into law in December. 
The Texas governor reacted to the lawsuit on X, saying, Biden sued me today because I signed a law making it illegal for an illegal immigrant to enter or attempt to enter Texas directly from a foreign nation. I like my chances. Abbott also discussed the court case on Fox News. Texas is the only government in the United States of America that's stepping up trying to stop illegal immigration by building our own border wall. The Justice Department says the law is unconstitutional, calling it a violation of the Supremacy Clause, which says that federal laws usually supersede state laws. The strong waves of illegal immigration led to the closure of several border crossings last month. The government will now reopen four U.S.-Mexico border crossings on Thursday. Border authorities say that surge has receded somewhat and freed up personnel. But some caution that migrant crossings have historically dropped between Christmas and New Year's Day. The U.S. will resume operations at an international bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas, two crossings in Arizona, and another near San Diego, California. The House passed a sweeping immigration and border security bill last year known as H.R. 2 that was opposed by Democrats. But several senators say the bill won't pass the Senate. Republican Senator James Lankford on the bill. It's got a lot of great ideas and a lot of good pieces in it. I can get a Democratic Senate to be able to agree with that at all. My understanding is that H.R. 2 doesn't have Democratic votes in the House or in the Senate. But independent Senator Kirsten Sinema is more optimistic about passing a bipartisan border security bill. Sinema said on Wednesday that Senate negotiators were closing in on a deal which could couple southern border security with new emergency aid for Ukraine and Israel. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Is there a link between the current housing market and the rise in homelessness in America? I spoke to Jeffrey Tucker, a senior columnist at the Epic Times, about the effects of an ev eviction moratorium that could be driving lower-income individuals out of housing. Well, anybody who's studied this can identify a number of problems that are that are extend beyond just not having a place to live, like um, uh, you know, uh, mental problems. There's drug abuse issues. There's uh, all sorts of uh, pathologies that uh, uh, the people are associated with. But the other thing that my article in Epoch, and I think this is, I'm the only one who's actually made this connection, I really did try to connect it to uh, the rental moratoriums of uh, 2020 and 2021. What you had was the CDC, the CDC of all people, Centers for Disease Control. Uh, announcing that if people didn't pay their rent, you couldn't kick them out. The Supreme Court uh, struck that down and said this is ridiculous, unconstitutional, but it was too late. Already, landlords were severely traumatized by this, the inability to collect rents from their own tenants. And so they became very uh, scrupulous about uh, who was renting their apartments. So now, you have a very different situation today than five years ago. Just getting a lease on an apartment is extremely difficult. You're going to have to pay uh, two or three months' rent, and uh, you're going to have to have three, four, five, six times the amount of uh, income stream. Your typical landlord will get 50 applications for one unit. So, of course, they're only going to take the, the people that, that pass the, high, the, the best possible uh, lease signers with the best possible credit ratings and financial history because they don't want to get robbed again. How much of a role do you think this moratorium plays next to all the <laughs> other reasons that we usually hear about? 
Well, it's impossible to say, but I would speculate, and just on intuition, that it accounts for the whole of the increase, actually, because we had drug problems, we had uh, mental illness problems, we had all the we had the housing shortage. All that was true five years ago. So, what made the difference uh, in the last uh, couple of years? And and the rent moratoriums and the higher and higher standards for renting are a major factor here. Now, so what's interesting is that this is this this is not affecting current renters. So if you've already got a lease and you re-sign the lease and you're paying your, your bills and everything's fine, then nobody cares, right? But it's just the new tenants that are under such a microscope all the time from from landlords, and they're having a hard time even getting past the the first thing. And you know this from from talking to people who have moved to a new uh, city or uh, students, you know, when they're leaving college looking for a place to, to, to rent and they find that they cannot get a contract. What do you think, what kind of solutions are needed here? Uh, it's going to be a long time before, uh, uh, before leaseholders and, and landlords decompress from this experience because it was a massive attack on their, on their rights. And it's scared. I mean, everybody in the country is scared. Every, every commercial enterprise in the country is scared of lockdowns, scared of these kind of impositions. So it's going to take a very long time to get over that. But one thing that we can do immediately is incentivize a de more development of, of lower income uh, housing. And I don't, I don't mean uh, forcing communities to uh, to build them or telling developers, oh, for every every fancy place you have to build uh, three lower income units. Uh, th those kind of systems just don't work. But just simply a deregulated system where we free up land use for for other purposes and reduce regulations and incentivize investments. So thank you so much, Jeffrey Tucker, for your insights on this. I thought I think that was very eye opening. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. It's a new year, and that means new chances to boost your yearly retirement savings. But for some, trying to save up can be harder when you also have to pay off student loans and are trying to build up some emergency savings. Here's some details on how the newest retirement laws can help you stretch those dollars. Is bolstering your retirement account one of your goals for 2024? Well, four new work benefits starting this year could help you. The first one aims to help those who are still paying student loan debt. The idea was to make it easier for employee, those younger employees to be able to start their retirement savings journey by giving them credit for paying student loan payments and counting those student loan payments as essentially contributions. And they'll get a matching contribution for those student loan payments. Two other provisions help with emergency savings. The vast majority of working Americans don't even have, you know, a few hundred dollars in cases of emergencies. The first is what's called a sidecar account that employees can contribute up to $2,500 as an emergency fund while still earning an employer match in their 401k. The second would allow employees to access up to $1,000 a year from their 401k without being hit with a penalty. If they just took money out of the plan without um, any special rule like this, it would be a 10% penalty. The final provision will allow part-time employees to participate in company 401ks after logging 500 hours over a 12-month period for two consecutive years instead of three. In the end, it's up to your employer as to which of these new provisions they want to adopt. Of the four, they are only required to implement 401k access to part-time employees. And we take you over to Mexico, where a puppy kindergarten is training dogs that may become heroes in the future. 
The school raises and trains one breed of dog they consider best suited for a very specific task. Let's take a look. Outside of Mexico City, there's a kindergarten for puppies. They're being trained to become rescue dogs or to sniff for drugs or explosives. Mexico's Army and Air Force Training Center opened in 1998. In the past, they bred German Shepherds or Rottweilers for the work. Now, they only breed and train Belgian Malinois, about 300 per year. It's a very intelligent dog. It's a dog with a lot of hardiness, very resistant to diseases, and that really helps us a lot in terms of work. It's a dog that can work at different heights above sea level, both in high and low places. Even though the training resembles military boot camp, it's all fun and games for the puppies. We start playing with the puppy and it gets to be drawn to an attractor. For us, an attractor can be a ball, a toy or a rag. So the puppy is always going to go for the prey. Colonel Camacho says some dogs at the center have been trained to detect fentanyl, which is blamed for about 70,000 overdose deaths annually in the United States. And others become heroes in Mexico or around the world, like the German shepherd Proteo, who is part of a rescue team sent to Turkey to search for earthquake survivors. Proteo died during the mission, and the school honors him with a statue on the base. The dogs maintain a close relationship with their handlers during their working careers in the military. It is the human-dog symbiosis where the dog uses us to survive, but we also use the dog to do a job. So it's a coordinated work where we both get a benefit. Whether it's your family's pet or a trained military canine, there's a lot of truth to the saying, a dog is man's best friend. Well, with those dogs' efforts to track down and prevent fentanyl from getting in the United States and rescuing people, hopefully they get a nice retirement package. Hopefully. Fingers crossed for them. But no, seriously, I've heard so much about them. They're highly intelligent and they can jump super high, I think up to eight feet. There's a bunch of videos online. So they're super agile as well, really intelligent. Yes. And really fierce. They look good, fierce. Good at their job, that's for sure. They got those yeah. powerful noses. That's right. All right. We are wrapping up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information, of course. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast. It's at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.